Libby writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rides podcast. We got old friend Chase Parham on the show today. Talked a little bit of baseball, but uh, not tried not to be too repetitive from uh, the kind of baseball megapod Colin and I did on Tuesday. We got into more of uh, why there's been such a jump in offense in the Southeastern Conference this year, the home run totals, and how... That coupled with a couple of different other factors, the transfer portal changes the way teams will be building pitching staffs in the future and roster construction as a whole. We also talk some Chris Beard uh, and his success on the recruiting trail and in the transfer portal. And then a J.B. Holmes uh, golf six-man tournament sandbagging story at the end for uh, all of you golf fans out there. So buckle up. Thank you. Enjoy this pod as it takes you into the weekend. But before we get to that, though, wanted to remind you, that this podcast is now brought to you by a brand new sponsor, RentTheSipOxford.com. Are you looking for a place to stay for a football game weekend, graduation, rush weekend? Maybe you're just passing through for a, a weeknight and don't want to mess with the hotel, baseball games, whatever the case may be. If you're familiar with Oxford, you know that can be hard to come by, particularly on big weekends. Places to stay, hotel rooms can become scarce. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered. Their Turnberry unit will sleep eight. It is right there off of Old Taylor Road and Turnberry condominiums. It is gated. It includes amenities such as a sauna, pool, and tennis courts. As I mentioned earlier, it will sleep eight comfortably. It's right there, less than a mile from campus. It's a straight shot to Swayze Field, kind of a straight shot to Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, but a short walk nonetheless, and if not, a short uh, cab ride or short drive. Check them out today at rentthesipoxford.com. But be sure to do it quickly because weekends and rooms are filling up fast rent the sip oxford still has availability for rush week mercer football weekend vandy football weekend ulm football weekend and now lsu football weekend so go ahead and get on it now if you want to attend a football game particularly one of those four maybe rush week move in week also available but check them out at rent the sip oxford.com once you find the opening that you want to book use the promo code rippy rights that's r-i-p-p-e-e rights and that'll get you a hundred bucks off any two night minimum stay. So that's just a little bonus for you for listening to the podcast. The email is now live. It is Bracken at rentthesipoxford.com. Good people, quality place to stay. Bracken Ray wouldn't steer you the wrong way. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. All right, here is Chase Parham on some baseball, basketball recruiting, and a little bit of golf at the end. All right, we now welcome on uh, Rivals Rebel Grove man himself, Chase Parham, uh, who has entered in probably the earliest offseason of his career. Um, I know you were still covering the program in 2011, but uh, it's been a good decade or so since you no longer have nothing to do Memorial Day weekend when the calendar turns to June. That has to be a little bizarre. You know, it's uh, it, it's interesting because I looked this up because I was curious. By date, it is the earliest earliest that the Ole Miss baseball season has been over since uh, a tie for 2002. In 2002, they missed the SEC tournament. They uh, lost on the final day of the regular season to Mississippi State. They got swept. They kept them out of Hoover. They actually lost 10 of their last 12 uh, SEC games that season after being number six in the country at one point. But, uh, yeah, by date, it's the earliest since then. Let's see, spring of 2002. I was graduating high school that semester. So it's been a minute um, as far as how how early they are, they are done. And I'll tell you, Memorial Day wasn't bad without a lot going on. Now, I did do some portal stuff. Ole Miss starting to get involved in the portal. I, I, I was I made some phone calls. I was I had to end up leaving the pool at one point to, to talk on the phone a little bit. But it was pretty nice to kind of get up that morning, knock out a couple things, and just know you can go ahead and pop one or open something up, head to the pool, and take the day. That is – that is not typically the case. Usually it is getting up and uh, trying to figure out where Ole Miss is headed before they actually announce. It's sort of one of my shticks of trying to figure out early where they're uh, where they're going. And Memorial Day is one of those days where you do the, the watch party with the team and then you write about it and you talk to them. And it ends up being 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock before you're done. But I think I got to the pool at 11.15 on Monday. Wow. I mean, that's just unprecedented territory. And as I mentioned, right before we hit the record button, we'll do a little baseball. I don't want to do it just a ton and be repetitive. And honestly, at this point, it feels like beating a dead horse. But I would like a little history lesson from the dean of the uh, Ole Miss beat. The 2011 year where they had a chance to win the West, 
and then lose. Not only they didn't get swept, they lost two of three to Arkansas and not only didn't win the West, they finished in last place in Miss Hoover. Looking at the standings of it, there's a website called 14 Powers, which seems like a pretty reliable site for like past records. So shout out to whoever runs that thing. That was helpful. That almost I get that it's mathematically possible because, you know, just sheerly how it works. But how the hell did that happen? Everybody was very mediocre in the SEC that year. I mean, I mean, that's the easiest way to put it is that nobody ran away from anybody. You had a bunch of just sort of okay teams, but nothing crazy whatsoever. And um, you know, I Arkansas think LSU wanted it that year. 15, by the way, just to point it that out. And then there was a yeah, because, three-way, three-way tie for 14 and 16, and Ole Miss and LSU finished last at 13 and 17. So the reason we say that obviously they would have tied for the West is it would have been, I guess, a four- or five-way tie for the West at that point had they won one of the two games on the final day because they played a doubleheader. The final day of the regular season was a doubleheader in Fayetteville, and they got swept in both sides of it. So that sent them from tying for the West and who knows what the hell the tiebreakers would have done to falling out of – see, at that point, only the top eight made Hoover, though. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that was a whole different stigma. You know, back then, the question was always, could you miss Hoover and make the NCAA tournament? Yeah. And you look at RPIs, and you do a lot of stuff like that, and Ole Miss uh, did not make that uh, that, that, that that RPI – or, sorry, that, that, that tournament berth. You know, LSU is the interesting case, actually, from that season, because Ole Miss was not very good. Ole Miss – that was a team that when you look back as far as just who was on it, you go, wow, why were they so bad? Because that we was did Bobby Wall and Mike yeah. Myers and Alex Yarbrough and Matt Snyder and dudes that were really, really good, but they were young and it was freshmen. And it was just sort of a weird time for Ole Miss baseball. But LSU that season, they did not make uh, the NCAA tournament either, I'm pretty sure. And I want to say they had a 17 RPI and didn't make it. It was like the top RPI ever to make the NCAA tournament. And I want to say it was like 17 18. For whatever reason, when you just said that, what stuck out was Ole Miss hosted with a slightly higher RPI 19. Hosted, if I'm not mistaken. Remember that when they ended up taking the last hosting spot? They were at like a 19-ish RPI, if I remember correctly, somewhere around there. And then in that world, LSU misses the tournament. Another crazy thing about that year, you mentioned like everyone being average, not being very good. It was outside of three teams in the East. The East finished in a three-way tie that year. You want to guess the record of South Carolina, Florida, and Vanderbilt who tied for the top of the East that year? So I'm assuming because of the way you're saying that, they simply ran the hell off from everybody else. Yes. 22 and 8 or something? That's exactly what it was. Okay. Yeah. Would that even happen nowadays? With as competitive as the league is from top to bottom, like with something like that, the lopsided, even just both divisions being weird, do you think that could happen nowadays? It's that third team that makes it so unlikely. Because, I mean, this year, obviously, if LSU, I mean, Arkansas and Florida both went 20 and 10 and had – LSU had one more pitcher. They could have thrown up some big record necessarily. But, yeah, 22-8, and eight, because what happens for that to be the case is you've got to have a lot of freaking losses on that bottom half. You know what I mean? Like, somebody's yeah. got to suck. And what's interesting about the season you're talking about is I just pulled it up, is the West was very mediocre, and you had two teams that won seven and eight, which is terrible, but – not as bad as I would have thought. Had you told me that three teams went 22 and eight, I would have thought somebody went five and 25 or something like that. I'm, I'm a little shocked that the worst team still was, was seven wins, which obviously was more than, than Ole Miss had this season. I just looked it up when the season was over because Warren Nolan does RPI through the college world series. I hate it. I wish they would just cut it off and then we're into the regular season, but LSU's end of year RPI was 21. That's absolutely nuts. And to your point about that, right, you have two teams that finished with seven, eight wins at the bottom of the East. Even if you don't have the five and 25 team, I would expect it because what, however, the the cross divisional scheduling would have shaken up that you would have at least had a West team in that neighborhood too, like a third team to really kind of have it bottom out. And that just never happened. I know no one cares about this. I'm going to get off 2011, but you brought it up. So it's kind of your fault. In today's world, this team is in the tournament without even a question because, you know, now 13 and 17 gets you in. They made the right call expanding Hoover because that was a stigma back then that just simply didn't allow it. If you, unless you had something really gaudy, and I mean, LSU's schedule was pretty damn gaudy, you you didn't make it. You had to make the conference tournament, get into the NCAA tournament. LSU finishes 21 RPI. And like I said, I think it was 17 at the end of the regular season. Strength the schedule of 35, 11 wins against the top 50. 19 wins against the top 100 and 36 total wins. Good Lord. And got left out. That's a, that's a tough, 
tough, cold world. Um, man, and man, now with the increased attention on it, there would have been, I mean, you have people complaining every year online and kind of the ecosystem that we exist in of college baseball about who doesn't get in, who does, who did. That would have been an absolute riot um, had we had kind of the modern social media and stuff now. Um, they only went 20, they, they went 23 and three in the non-con. <laughs> like there's nothing in their schedule that's bad. <laughs> Hey, and who says LSU gets favorable treatment? Clearly, they got screwed that year. Um, really, the last thing I want to get to, like baseball-wise, is – and I wrote about this earlier this week, and I was kind of peppering you with a couple questions during the writing process. One, I want to get to the portal piece of it, but obviously this is the worst thing Mike ever had. Do you think just the way this – I mean, I even just eye test. I get the records bad, bad. This is one of the worst Ole Miss baseball teams ever, wasn't it? Which is shocking to say. <laughs> I mean, what are we talking about? Overall record and just in general? Um, and I, I haven't mean, gone I mean, back through all the years. I'm sure there have been some bad ones. But at the same time, since they moved to 36 and 24, 6 and 24, like that that's not good. You won, you know. Well, it does tie the worst record ever when it comes to a 30-game conference schedule. The 1997 team went 6 and 24, and they had a worse overall record than Ole Miss. I don't remember what it was. Um, but they that so no, is it the worst team ever? No. And Ole Miss look had some dogs. I mean, there were some years there, I guess in the eighties. I mean I'm pulling it up right now as I'm talking. Um I know it makes somewhat bad pod, but that's okay. People were just hanging out with us for a little while. It it's the most and I get the pitching. And like I said, this is this is a story I'm writing next week to really dive into why the SEC is the way it is right now, what went wrong, why it's harder to pitch in the league, all these different things. I'm, I'm going to dive into them in written form very aggressively and, and, and pretty comprehensively starting probably Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. But I think you can say this. I get there were the two injuries. I think it was the most underachieving team in program history. I, I think that's fair in a lot of ways. I mean, number one, preseason ranking. Number two, coming off the title. All those things – but even beyond that, I mean, it's a team that went six and twenty-four despite having three fringe all SEC offensive players and a top ten pick. And Kip Alderman, who put up one of the top SEC or top top Ole Miss seasons in SEC history. Now, in saying that, look, the balls are juiced. It's never been easier to hit in the SEC. Kemp didn't even sniff SEC player of the year. It, it was a very offensive year. But the point stands that in a vacuum. It's just kind of crazy. You sort of look up and stare at it and go, oh, my God. I mean, it, 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 it's unreal. And I was looking at it here trying to find some crazy conference record where they were much worse. Honestly, Brian, there's not a ton. They were 6-21 in 1988. They were 5-18 and 18 in 1985. Um, and I'm going to go like – I'm not going to get out of whatever you would sort of consider the modern era. But they were really good in the 50s and 60s, so there's not going to be any dog SEC seasons in that. From a straight just SEC record, it seriously might tie that 97 for the worst ever. I'm just not seeing anything. I think unless there's something I missed, you have to go back to 1943 on a team that finished 2-10 and 10 to find a worse winning percentage in an SEC campaign. And I was going to mention, I was two years old in 1997. Wasn't really watching a ton of Ole Miss baseball at that point. Probably working on the whole potty training thing. But as currently constructed with both those teams in May, I'm just taking the 97 team against the 2023 team by default in a three-game series. Because I just watched it with my own eyes. Maybe I'm a prisoner of the moment, but my God, toward the end of that year, is like, how are these guys going to win any games? And, you know, it's been You're well saying the guess is that, that that team had a little more steam there at the end, no matter what it looked like. That's Sure. That's I mean, well, I'll say this. This seems Friday guy. I don't know what they ran out on Friday in 97, but I'm probably assuming the 97 team had an advantage. And that's not really to dump on Rivas. He really wasn't prepared for that role. But just the sheer point they were in by May, I'm just – I'm taking the 97 team. I think – I could be wrong here, but I want to say the 97 team – it was 96 or 97. I don't remember which one. It was, it was 96. The 96 team started 1-18 in the league. Whoa. And I think they finished seven and twenty-three. So one game better than this. That was Donnie Kessinger's last year as head coach. The ninety-seven team, here's why you would pick them. Is look, I know nothing about Auburn, but I know that Auburn was in Omaha the next season. Ole Miss actually won a series at Auburn to end the ninety-seven season. So they came into it four and twenty, whatever that would be, four and twenty-three or yeah, four and twenty-three. Yeah. 
Okay. See, those guys yeah. finished strong. If anyone out there is listening yeah. from the 97 team, please. Brad Henderson was on the 97 team. Ole Miss is a color commentator who's the all-time school leader in hits. And he so they had to sort of a Jacob Gonzalez kind of deal there. He gets to talk to Mike after the games. I wish he'd have just dropped it on him at one point. And be like, you know, on 97, we suck, but I think we would have beat the shit out of you guys. Um, that probably That's that not- drop five era that was basically softball bats too, you know? Like back then, that was the, the rocket launching era. Okay, so and you mentioned the offensive piece of it. That made me think of something that I'd like seen a couple times over the last, I'd say, month and a half of the college baseball season. Obviously, everyone refers to that era. What do they call it? The gorilla ball era, yeah. um, where you're just launching home runs out of the ballpark. Some of the offensive numbers are approaching that. In an anecdotal notes, I've seen in some ways on individual cases, like in some ways, exceed it. Who's responsible for juicing these baseballs? How the hell did we get here? That's what's funny about it. So the, that era for drop fives is, and for anybody who doesn't really get it now, um, bats, length versus uh, weight. That, that That's what we consider as two numbers. Back then, to be legal, it had to just be a five difference, meaning if it was a 34-inch bat, a 29-ounce bat, or 32-27, or whatever it was for your your situation. Well, now it's, it's drop three. So 35-32, 32-29, heavier bat, less pop, less power. They've changed the composite nature of the bats. We've gone through the BB core era. And we we, we we actually have a bat that plays very similar to a wood bat. It's as close as you can get from a wood bat to an aluminum bat and then mimicking each other. It helps everybody. It helps the players. It helps safety. It helps scouts try to figure out what a guy's going to hit like with a wood bat later. And look, not, I don't know that anybody's admitted the balls are juiced, but I've talked to lots of people around college baseball, and they all say that they're wound tighter. They've done something to make these things pop more. And, and where I'm going with this, and let me kind of get through it, is as I lay out what I think. So in the mid-'90s and through this drop five era, it was all about the bat. It was just known that the bats were the reason, and, and it was manipulated with the bat. That's all. Everything else was normal baseball except for the bats. And, yeah, you're hitting – I mean, watch the watch the home run derby some of these years. They've let kids bring in whatever bat they want, and some of these kids hit with, like, the old black magics from the 90s. And, I mean, it is just piss missiles out of Charles Schwab. I mean, it, it's crazy to watch. Like, it, it's my gimmick I wish they would do. I wish they would put nets up, protect the fans, and give major league hitters drop five bats in the MLB All-Star game. Let's just see what Mike Trout can do with that thing. Let's see where it goes. Love to see that, or just let him do it in the home run derby. You might have to remove. That's what I meant. No, sorry, that's what I meant. The home run derby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just have. You might have to remove the kids from shagging balls in the outfield (laughs) to let them do. But I would like to see that because some of we would see some like hundred and twenty five exit speeds. Oh, it'd be amazing. Honestly, I I would love that. That would be incredible stuff to watch. I mean, it would make the MLB thing like the that whole spectacle more compelling. So, kind of previewing what I'm writing. Here's what's happened now is I believe balls are are more lively. Again, I can't prove it. It's just anecdotal. Coaches agree with me, so we'll take their word for it more than mine. But I I believe that. Okay. So we have that. Um, We have the transfer portal, which is only going to be more so where you are having more concentrated talent on the high major teams. Because in the past world, Colton Ledbetter or Sonny DeSachera or those kind of guys, they're not going to sit out to then transfer to Auburn or Mississippi State or wherever. So the best teams are getting more offensive players because of COVID and some different things. We're getting older offensive players. Guys are hanging around more. They're more mature in in all ways, physical, plate approach. Call it what you want to call it. That's going on. Okay. So then, in addition to that, we have Trike Man registering umpires' ability to call the strike zone in real time for the first time ever. Well, what's happened is they're tightening it up because they don't want to be wrong. They don't want to give too much off the plate to pitchers. So they've tightened up the strike zone. Okay, that's made it harder to pitch. Suddenly, pitchers have to throw it into a coffee can. But umpires are bad. So because they're bad in addition to trying to tighten it up, they're not giving the high strike. In the major leagues, you get a big high strike. College baseball, you don't get it. The umpire will not call the high strike because to him it looks weird and the fans are going to get on his ass about it. So now you've shrunk the strike zone into a spot it's actually worse than the MLB strike zone and more inconsistent because the umpires aren't as good. In addition to that, you've put a pitch clock on, and because of the pitch clock, you can't ever regroup and take a second. You're getting the ball, and you're throwing, and you're doing all these things. Well, especially a newcomer, a freshman. You saw this with Grayson Saunier, those kind of guys. You saw this with some Juco transfers. Well, in the past, you could take a breath. You could step off. You could, do, you could tie your shoe. Now, you're getting beat up 
you're kind of unraveling mentally a little bit and there's no help. You've got to get back in there and in 20 seconds, you've got to throw the damn thing again and you got to keep going. I think all these things are combusting on one another to create the era that we're in. And, you know, it, it's also creating, in my opinion, could be wrong. I think it's leading to some of the arm injury problems too, because when you throw more high stress innings, you automatically are putting more stress on your arms. Like right now, it's just constant. You've got to try to worry about every out and you don't have a lot of leeway to, to relax out there. You're going to throw more breaking balls because you need swing and miss. You're going to get more swing and miss with breaking balls than you do fastballs. There's no doubt about that. Um, and you're maxing it out because we're outside of the era where starters go seven, eight innings routinely. I mean, that's truly changed even in the last couple of years. And this year was the biggest stark difference. I mean, I wrote this, I think on Monday or Sunday, Paul Skeens was the only SEC pitcher to average six innings or more this season. He was the only one. Six innings, that's all, for a starting pitcher. And I think only four pitchers in the SEC averaged five or more. So now it's about depth. It's about just getting out there, seeing how many outs you can get at full velocity, at max effort, and then you get out and you hand the ball to somebody else. And that's one of the things where you're probably going to transition from the transfer portal standpoint. It's where Ole Miss has got to not even necessarily worry about, hey, i got to go find a Paul Skeens or a mutant like him or something like that. You just got to find as many arms as possible that can get at least three outs and stockpile those things on top of one another. Yeah, and I think you saw their inability to do that really kind of showed this year. The last piece on that, though, the baseball is clearly a big component of it because I remember the first year I started covering it full time, and you would know this better than I am, so help me fill in the timeline. They The 2015 season was the first season I started covering Ole Miss baseball. They changed the baseball that year, didn't they? Because I remember something about it, and the reason I say that is because if you look at Ole Miss's statistics that year, Sykes Orvis hit 16 home runs. The next uh, closest behind him was seven. Ole Miss only had seven guys on its roster hit home runs. They only had five. Like at all? Yeah, yeah, total. You have seven dudes that hit long balls and you only have one, two, three, four, five who hit more than one home run. And I remember that year specifically, I don't know if it was a press box conversation or what I remember about it. I remember certain balls just being absolutely nuked and not getting out. But didn't they do something where they raised the seams a little bit? And a couple years after that, it felt like we hit a nice balance, but clearly something has changed from there. Do you have any sort of timetable on the change in the ball in the last seven, eight years? So I actually think um, what happened was they were let's see, they had higher seams and then they lowered them. If I if I have that correct, and I think it was before yeah, I had that the, backwards. Yeah, if it was before, I think the 2015 season was when they started the new baseball. That's exactly um, what it, it was, and it did a couple different things. So they took the seams, lowered them. Um, that is going to do two different things. That is number one, going to put less bite on the pitches because pitchers want higher seams. It gives them more ability to manipulate with their fingers and spin and all that kind of stuff. And then two, it is going to, in theory, make the baseball travel farther because there's less resistance because a flatter baseball is more aerodynamic. It's not going to catch as much wind. I mean, it's going to be a very small percentage, but the ball that goes 380 now maybe goes 388 and it goes out of the park or whatever. They say there's a difference there. Um, so, yes, there is certainly a – I was looking actually here. I was looking it up. Um, da, 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 a study from Washington State and Rawlings Research Lab concluded that a flat seam ball with a 95-mile-an-hour exit velocity at a 25-degree angle travels on average 387 feet. A high-seamed ball with the same variables travels 367 feet. So that's 20 feet on a ball at 95 exit velocity and a 25 degree exit. Good Lord. That's the difference in a home run and an out. And I guess to back that up in 2015, I can't get the order correctly because it's not a PDF, but in 2015, A&M led the conference with 70 home runs. Um, Vanderbilt hit 66 and Arkansas hit 69 and no one else was above 53 for the year as a team this year you had i just had it one two three four five six teams hit over a hundred here's a stat for you so in 2014 so the year before the uh baseball changed there were 6446 home runs hit in all college baseball okay 6446 in 2017, so two years after the change, there were 12,321. 
But we at some point hit the happy medium. I, and I remember it distinctly because those 18 to 22 years seem like a big, bigger balance, but now we're seeing this spike. And maybe it's everything you described. Maybe it's not as much the baseball, but it does seem like we hit a happy medium that seemed like a pretty nice equilibrium. Yeah, because we thought we, we thought a deader bat and a lively baseball was the right mix. That felt now like something's okay, happened. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. And now and I, I do. I think the ball. I think the ball's more juiced. I, I can't prove it. I don't know. Maybe Rawlings or Hoot Wilson or whomever is doing something. Maybe they're not. But then those other environmental factors are definitely making a difference. You've got better offenses. You've got more balls missing. You've got a lot of stuff. You've got walks up. I mean, it's one thing I'm going to write about next week, week. Is you know, in some ways, we're almost in a little bit of a quality at bat era because as many home runs are being hit. If you look at the teams who scored a lot of runs, they had a ton of walks. They took a lot of pitches. They worked They worked pitchers, and they really got after you. I and mean, it's one of the things Ole Miss struggled with. They didn't walk offensively, and they walked everybody on the mound. I mean, they were, their, their, free back, their free pass percentage from what they did offensively to on the mound was probably the worst in the league outside of maybe Mississippi State. They uh, they walked the fewest times in the conference this year, 230, and they were 148 short of the leader in A&M, to your point. But in, so Colin, I mentioned, mentioned that to Colin a couple times through the years, and he mentioned that being a little bit of an offensive philosophy thing with Clem. Do you think that takes a bit of a philosophy shift, and do you put any credence into that? I mean, it, it, look, the aggression argument has got to be selective aggression. I mean, look, if they're going to throw an 88 mile an hour fastball down the middle of the plate on the first pitch, then yes, hit it. But Ole Miss too many times was trying to either pull an outside pitch or they were so consumed with going middle away that, frankly, they were rolling over a lot of pitches. I mean, I think Ole Miss had somewhat of a over-aggression to them that that combined with their philosophy of hitting the ball back up the middle and the other way, it created some problems. Because when you have those two things together, well, if you're not hitting the right pitches to do that with, well, then suddenly you're just popping the ball up and you're rolling over and you're doing all these different things. And then, look, it's two years in a row for the most part. And I know this is crazy to say because they just won a national championship a year ago. The offense has felt so much pressure. I mean, their pitching staff has just not been very reliable, even relative to the rest of the league. I'm not even saying relative to 2014 or 2015. But just in general, where I think there is a standard where the offense felt like it had to score all the time because there's two things that are needed to win in the SEC. We can talk about what you need on the mound and you just need arms that can get some outs. And, you know, the curve has kind of changed on what we anticipate a good pitching staff to be. I mean, I would assume the median ERA is way up in the SEC. You might have the stats in front of you. I don't have it. But and then. On the other side is, well, you better have one of those offenses that can do what we're talking about. I mean, if everybody else has got an offense that just works the crap out of staffs, well, if you don't, give it up. You're not going to win baseball games. Leading ERA in the conference this year was Tennessee at 3.69. That definitely feels higher without having an immediate point of reference. Mississippi State was the only one that clocked in at a team. And this is counting non-conference games. I usually go conference-only stats. But uh, State had a 70 ERA for the season uh, for the whole whole 58-60 game slate. Which doesn't seem good. So it's definitely – Yeah, uh, what? 7.01 ERA on the year, team ERA. So how many teams – and this is all games? Yeah, I, I went all games for this one. Okay, so give me the ERAs in the SEC in better to worse order. Uh, all right, so Tennessee led the conference at 3.69. Vanderbilt, or excuse me, Alabama was at 3.98, and those are the only two clubs that were under 420. Uh, South Carolina was at 420. You got a bunch of teams in the mid-fours, and then after the eighth spot, Florida at 4.87. You get into Texas A&M with 5.6, uh, 5.56, excuse me, Auburn 5.80, Missouri 5.95, and then Georgia, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State were all very bad. To Georgia and Ole Miss's credit, they were both around 6'4", and State was in its own stratosphere. This is 2019, so I didn't go back very far. I went back three completed seasons. That's it, three completed seasons. Here were the ERAs inside the SEC. 3 Good Lord. 2019, Brian. The yeah, worst ERA not... in the conference was South Carolina at five five one. I mean, yeah, I mean it, it kind of gives credence to that statistic that we were talking about earlier with the home runs. I mean, it's it's 
it's it's just bonkers to think about like the the way that it's changed quickly and so i guess that's a decent transition and this whole portal aspect of it i know it's early on um you know most teams with good players are still playing they will presumably play through this weekend and then it'll kind of taper off from there as you cover this whole old miss portal offseason how do you kind of approach it do you have a number in mind of what you think they can get or should get it's a weird year because they also lose most of their offense like how much of a portal class are we talking about here and how do you figure they'll approach it so we're talking a pretty substantial portal class as long as they can get the number of guys necessary i mean you know look there's a couple things um number one you have to be financially competitive enough to win these battles with nil two you have to be hitting at a very high percentage to these guys can not only help but help now and hit in the sec you know it's a weird evaluation situation maybe even more so than getting a high school kid because you can't wait they can't get a year of development they've got to be able to go and while it's easier and you have more sample size than taking some kid who played 3a baseball in alabama and trying to figure out if he can hit immediately in the sec these league numbers are not necessarily interchangeable across the board i mean if you're Ole miss or any team in the sec and a kid raked in the big 10 you've got to have at least a little pause and go is that because he was in the big 10 I mean, what does that really mean? What is that telling me? So I think you're back to watching film, really analyzing these guys' swings, their makeup, talking to guys about how much they compete. I mean, I think there's a full level of evaluation that is far beyond numbers. Just telling me that a kid hit 15 bombs with 55 RBIs in the American, that didn't tell me anything. And I don't think that's a good indicator of what they're going to do inside the SEC because – you know, there's there's not a conference that's completely interchangeable. I mean, you know, obviously the uh, the Big 12, the ACC or two that somewhat are, are the same, but this is just an, an animal. I was talking to a non-Ole Miss coach yesterday, and he goes, you know, look, the SEC has always been a beast. It's only worse, and it's only going to get worse as we move forward as these teams still the, – the best players are going to leave a lot of these schools, go into the SEC – and we're just going to see more accumulation of talent. I mean, I think you can see as long as it works out for Ole Miss and they get what they want, I think you could have as many as eight portal transfers. I mean, I, I think you're talking about a big number this year for Ole Miss as they go through this. And, you know, look, you know the spots they need. They need a shortstop. They need a catcher. They need a, they need a center fielder. They need as many bats as they can find. And then you just need any arm that can get outs in the SEC. We already know that they have uh, chopped a couple high school kids that were coming in this year, and we know that the portal's been very active with outgoing players for Ole Miss. They've done a lot more of that than in past years. You know, it's look, it's not something Mike likes. It, it's very much not something that he's comfortable with, but it's the way of the world, and I think you're about to see across the league larger fall rosters. You know, in the past, you wanted to keep it pretty close to the number you had to cut to on opening day. You've got a roster limit on opening day. And you don't want to be at the number in the fall because then if somebody gets hurt or somebody leaves, you're below the number and you're hurting yourself. But you also don't want to be the jerk that brings in 55 kids and cuts 20 kids three weeks before opening day or in December or whatever. But I think you're going to have to move that number up. I think you're going to have to get every able body you can and look, be honest with them up front. But it's just the price of poker. You cannot limit yourself with this roster. I think it's uh, I think it's 40 guys moving forward after COVID. I think they moved it from 35 to 40. And you mentioned, I mean, those two anecdotal notes you mentioned uh, regarding the the hitting, I mean, I don't think this was totally by accident. You're talking at the profile of a guy like Anthony Clarko and a guy like, um, I keep wanting to say Ethan, Lay Ethan Groff. I, I, I was I was talking about Clarko. I didn't necessarily mean to mention Ethan Groff indirectly there, but yeah, I guess I did. I mean, that, that, that counts too. But I mean, they got three um, portal hitters and none of them were productive enough that where you're like, man, that was a great addition. You know, Ethan Leger has absorbed like I think a two for 19 start in SEC play. And after that A&M weekend, he was actually a fairly productive SEC mm-hmm. hitter. But it was nothing where you're like, damn, I'm glad they got him type of thing. And then the other two just didn't really produce at a level that was ever going to make them a successful and well-rounded offense. It goes back to what you mentioned at the top. They had three all SEC players and they were the worst team in the conference and the worst offense in the conference. And it's and, and look, I think that's I think Groff is a great point because for two reasons. I think he proves two things. One, he's a guy that is absolutely talented enough to hit SEC pitching. I think if he comes back in 2024, he's gonna have a big year. He was much better defensively, he got credit for being. Frankly, he's elite out there defensively. He's one of the better center fielders they've had since yeah. Jamie Woodman. 
he just didn't get credit for it because everybody looks at Dylan Cruz and these other guys around the league and he didn't hit and Ole Miss was bad and a lot of reasons. But I think Groff's guy that comes back, if he comes back, he's very, very, very good. But no, that's the point is even as good as he could be, it wasn't immediate and you need immediate. I mean, you know, when State was looking at Colton Ledbetter, they couldn't be looking at just the Sanford numbers. They have to go, no, this kid has potential for these reasons or he did this in the summer or whatever it is. So, look, you can get guys from anywhere. I mean, I really like the kid. Ole Miss is going to be on this transfer from Mercer. Uh, Trey, Trayson Hughes is his name. He's really, really good. He hit 370-something for Mercer in the SOCON. Um, I think it's the SOCON. If it's not, I apologize. He hit a bunch of home runs. He plays center field. Um, they like the shortstop at Cal State Northridge. He can hit. He can really pick it defensively. He can do a lot of things for him. So, you're really trusting your eyes on this. But the part of the portal, too, or the part of the pass portal that you're still factoring in here is I think you've got to pay to keep some of your current players. I, I think it's a part that we don't talk about necessarily enough. I think that, look, if, if Ethan Groff is going to be a third-day draft guy, you've got to pay him that amount of money and keep him for next season. You've got to keep him locked up for another year and, and not let him go for the same money or close to it. I think Xavier Rivas is a guy that you pay to keep for next year. He can get you out. Now, look – Xavier Rivas is not a Friday night arm, but he is absolutely a competitive, productive arm in the SEC that you need back on your roster. Because, look, Ole Miss, everybody keep, everybody's taking this the wrong way. It wasn't that Ole Miss didn't work or acted like because they were still playing baseball last year or that they couldn't be in the portal. That wasn't it. They didn't understand just how – active the portal was going to be dollar-wise and competitive-wise with some of the teams they compete against, LSU, Florida, Tennessee, Arkansas. It was the first real year of it because yeah, of and they just kind of got left behind. The I mean, 2021 wasn't a real portal year for college baseball. This last yeah, year was no. the first real one. And they, 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 they got caught on their heels. They screwed up. They probably would admit that if you ask out loud, and I'll do that whenever I finally get Mike. But, you know, it's it's it, they, they messed up. It's not – it wasn't even an excuse. It just is what happened. Because even on a very basic level, they lost Nick Pogue, the, the Florida transfer, that was going to be in their weekend rotation to a minor league non-draft free agent contract. In today's world, you just pay that money and tell him to get his tail to campus. Right. It's not even a question. And it's a learning process, right? You mentioned it's not even an excuse. They admit it, but it's almost not like you can – like it's not a thing where you would write a column just crushing them for doing that. Everyone's learning on the fly. They had quite the bit of the distraction of, you know, winning the whole national title thing. And so it's like what do they do with it from there? And the last thing on this, you mentioned the hitting piece of it. I think you put eight as a number if you think they can ever get them. I figured that would be higher just because my simple question would be is who's going to get outs for them next year? You mentioned the philosophy shift. With, you know, maybe you don't necessarily have to have the dominant Friday night guy that goes seven. You just need as many arms that are capable of getting outs when you put them in the game as possible. You know, you mentioned the eight number. They're going to have to replace a lot on offense. But, like, who's getting outs for the team next year? I don't know. I mean, you're counting on development in a lot of ways. I mean, and I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, you're, no, I know. You, you, look, for Ole Miss to be really good next year, then they've got to get big jumps or at least moderate jumps out of Grayson Saunier, JT Quinn, and Sam DeQuinn. There's not a path to me that doesn't involve those three guys pitching meaningful innings in competitive games because all those three guys are talented enough. Grayson Sonier is not a bad pitcher. He ran into a buzzsaw of an SEC in a lot of different ways, and a lot of stuff went wrong and lost confidence. Quinn kept them in games. They just couldn't offensively and in the bullpen go win games. I mean, you look at sort of his in-game situations – he did a pretty good job on Sundays, and then I think Takoyan ends up being a pretty good bullpen arm. So there's a lot of development that has to go here. Um, there's picking up arms. And, look, here's the thing, too, and I, I'll, I'll get off of it with this because, like I said, I'm, you're kind of helping me a little bit because I'm outlining what I'm writing, is forever in the past, there's two things we knew about pitching in the SEC. One was dominant Friday arm. Saturday guy that was probably a prospect, could go strike a lot of guys out. Um, could put big outings together and kind of look like whatever. And then on Sunday, just somebody who could survive. Give them four innings, five innings, give up five runs, whatever. But just don't walk a bunch of dudes and don't give up eight runs in the first inning. And that was the profile. Well, as I said, that doesn't exist anymore because there are no aces really in this league anymore. It's just get as many outs as you can and hand the ball the next guy. But it's where Ole Miss really has screwed up from a roster management standpoint is that all their pitchers look the same. They all are right-handed. They all throw in the low to mid 90s and they all go fastball slider 
And that's because forever the sport was this quadrant pitching sport where you throw to the quadrants and you use breaking balls that go too plain and out of the zone and you get a bunch of swing and misses. That's not what this league is anymore. This league now is a front-to-back pitching, meaning you change speeds, you bring in change-ups, you bring in different arm angles, different looks, you bring in curveballs. I mean, frankly, the way Ole Miss has developed pitchers is no longer advantageous to, I think, where the game is going. I think the game now is if you get a kid who throws kind of sidearm or funky or a bunch of left-handers or all those kind of things, I think that's cooking with gas in the SEC. I think you've got to get away from this fastball slider mentality and you've got to have a bunch of versatility and a bunch of diversity, and you got to flip that out there and try to find 27 innings in that way. And you saw a, a bit of evidence to support that case overall, too, with how the season played out this year. Ole Miss didn't really lose a ton of games because they were down 9-1 in the third inning. It was, despite all their pitching injuries and despite everything they had to do to reshuffle it, it was the fact that after, if they got a good outing from a guy and he gave him four and two-thirds or five and two-thirds, they couldn't put up zeros in a close game to continue to keep it at bay. They lost so many games in the fifth, sixth, seventh innings. I mean, I remember I was at the Arkansas and Florida series and that game, I guess that may be game two against Florida. Maybe it was game one. I can't remember, but they just couldn't put up. They were up three with five outs to go. Yes, exactly. And there were so many like anecdotes of that where it's just like they didn't have any dudes. And part of that's the injury piece, but part of that probably speaks to how they're going to have to differ in how they approach this whole thing. You just have to have a bunch of dudes that can get outs, and unfortunately they didn't have any of them, and that's why they're in the position they're in. So it's going to be a fascinating offseason. I guess the last last piece on this is like, what's the timeline? Like when do you do you have a date where you're like, all right, they need to kind of have a proof of – not proof of concept, but sample size of like making traction in the portal. How do you gauge this? Because this is all still so new. It could take a minute um, because, look, the only guys who are active right now are the ones who their seasons are over. So there's 64 teams that aren't taking official – well, it's a dead period right now anyway. But through the weekend, they're not doing as much. They're, you know, there's tampering. Look, I mean, some of these guys know probably already know where they're going because they had phone calls the entire season. But – I mean, you've got to wait out a lot of these prospects that are on teams that are still playing in the postseason. The draft is July 9th through 11th. The portal is technically open through July 13th, but it'll mostly be all over with by then. I think you'll start seeing some kids pop middle of next week. Um, and then next week next week and next weekend, to me, will be the first really big visit periods where you'll be able to see, hey, this portal kid's on campus, this kid's doing this. You'll see some pecking orders run through. But we're probably talking – most of June for a good bit of activity, depending on who the kid is or where he's from or what his situation is. Um, I would assume that a lot of these kids who are sort of getting this early start, they're going to run this thing out over the next probably 10 to 14 days. On the total opposite in the spectrum as it pertains to the portal, the whole Chris Beard thing. I mean, I haven't kept up as much. I mean, you guys cover it every day at rebelgrove.com, but I haven't kept up as much as the basketball recruiting. I'd say I'd be playing catch up. Like something happens and I kind of try to ask like, well, how did this happen? Like, who is this kid? Chris Beard, you know, when they hired him, everyone was talking about like, this is one of the top coaches in the sports. And it's like, okay, now I kind of see why. Like he wasted no time. This is as good as advertised on paper so far. I know it's early. They still haven't played a season yet. But I mean, the guy brings in, six transfers I think he's got three high school kids and I would say those six transfers at least four of them are people or players or prospects whatever you want to classify them as as dudes that in past years if Ole Miss called they'd be like do you have the wrong number like are you serious with this shit like I can't believe I answered but they're in a different stratosphere immediately and it's it's kind of amazing to watch what happens when you actually get one of the top coaches in the sport and he just goes to work immediately there's a weird deal here of just covering this. And as long as I've been around it and it's nothing against anybody else is that you do sort of have some mornings where you're covering basketball and you're looking at things and you go, Chris Beard's their head coach. <laughs> and you sort of have to remind yourself a little bit for a second because yeah, he's, I mean, I was talking to a really big basketball guy that's involved with NIL at a bunch of different places this morning. And he's, I mean, he, he was just talking off the cuff. I mean, he wasn't even necessarily talking about Ole Miss or talking to me because I, I cover Ole Miss and he goes, Chris Beard is one of the top five basketball coaches in the country. And he just sort of said it and moved on with the next sentence. And he's at Ole Miss, a, a place that's won, what, five, six NCAA tournament games in its history. I mean, you know, Chris Beard's won more games in one year, maybe, than Ole Miss has in its program. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's so interesting as far as the excitement, the possibilities there, 
the way he's gotten out in the community, he's raised NIL money. He's been he, he's going to get even more vocal, frankly, as he gets closer. They've got some stuff planned. He hasn't started his fireside chats yet, and some of those things. And yeah, there are players that want to play for Chris Beard, no matter where he is. They want to hear from Chris Beard. They want to see what's going on with him, and and that puts Ole Miss in those ballparks. Now for this coming season, it's so interesting, and I wrote about it today. They're really relying on two waivers from the NCAA that are going to change what their roster makeup is, depending on how those go. If they get yeses on both, that's Brandon Murray, who started at LSU, was SEC All-Freshman with the Tigers, who went to Georgetown. Now he's at Ole Miss. And then uh, Musa Cisse, who was at Memphis, went to Oklahoma State, and is now at Ole Miss. They're both two-time transfers. And the NCAA on two-time transfers says that the only things applicable are if you had some sort of extenuating circumstance with assault or something like that, or physical or mental illness or injury or however you want to phrase those things. Um, per sources, Murray and Cisse have both um, filed with mental wellness to be the reasons for those things. They both have reputable cases. They both have documentation backing up while that's the case. We just don't know. We don't know how the NCAA is going to interpret these things um somebody told me yesterday that some of the problem too is there's no blueprint because you don't get explanations you just get a yes or a no and that's the final word and you kind of move on with the day from the league if they get those two kids they're in the NCAA tournament team in year one which is phenomenal from where they were last season if they get neither of them look they've got some roster issues it's kind of hard to put together it, it it's got some questions to it and then obviously one and one depending on who it is it's somewhere in the middle but what you see from this fan base, and I saw it in the replies to my story today and just in general, there is a calmness in the fan base just because Chris Beard is in charge. And they go, you know what? Y'all can worry about the specifics. He's our coach. I'm cool. We're just going to let it ride out, and it's going to be okay either way. He's going to figure it out. I mean, they have uh, – of the six transfers, they have four kids that are coming from power six schools, and the kid – one of the two that wasn't, uh, Sharp from Western Kentucky led the nation in shot blocking the last two years, and Ole Miss got him over Memphis despite Memphis hiring Slick Rick Stansberry. Like it, <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. Um, and like I, I would love to. See I mean, Cisse was the Big Twelve Defensive Player of the Year two years ago. Yeah, it, it's not a case of like this kid couldn't cut it here. Um, he's going somewhere else. They're they're in they're fishing in different waters, and I think that Brandon I, Murray can be a stud. Yes, and. They they're just they're simply fishing in different waters there before, and I think it's it's indicative and kind of reflective of the fan base's excitement too. How many people have told you they're getting basketball season tickets? Probably more than the stadium holds at this point. I mean, dude, it's the one sport I don't cover day to day. I mean, it's not about cheering, but it's just about a social it's activity. And same things. I'm one of them. I'm like, hey, I want to go. I want to see it. Yeah, it's two hours. You get it twice a week. It's a beautiful building. It You get in and out of there pretty quickly. It's just, a, again, that's what the whole Miss was missing for so long. And like as uh, we reiterated when Beard got hired, college basketball is supposed to be fun. It's in the deadest time of the year as a college student on the kind of the calendar. There's not much else going on. It's supposed to be fun. It's not every day. It's not three days in a row on a weekend. It's twice a week. It's two hours. And it's supposed to be electric every time you step on the court. It's great to take kids. Like it's the whole family, yep. the whole deal. Hey, go in, get some popcorn and a Coke and watch people fly around and shoot and have a good time. And then go home. Weather's going to be fine. It's good. Pavilion's nice. I joked with a buddy of mine that used to cover Kentucky the other day. I was like, I think in a couple of years, I'd be writing a column. It's like Chris Beard's inability to get to the second weekend really has <laughs> this had a crossroads as a program. <laughs> Like it felt like just the expectation has shifted that much. And like, of course that's putting the cart way before the horse, but it's just kind of crazy how quickly that's changed. And it's just further proof of, you know, in this whole kind of imperfect science that is hiring the right coach, there are a few standouts in each industry and in each sport. And there's a reason for that. And Beard seems to kind of check every box as it proves. His proof of concept, not just as a winning basketball coach, but a winning basketball coach, frankly, at a place that's not far different from Ole Miss and Texas Tech and everything he did. And, I mean, he had them a minute from a national title. They lost on that Monday night in, in, in a final. I mean, so it's – he has a belief. Um, he has a proof of concept. He's he's really, really impressive in that way. And I'm just looking at it here because I wanted to be sure. Yeah, Ole Miss has five all-time SEC tournament wins. Uh he has I guess to win. six counting our I guess six counting the opening round game. So he won five in one year. Ole Miss has six in their history since 19, whatever it is. 
and he won five in two three weeks. Yeah, correct. Yes. That At a place that correct. doesn't have a ton of history. Like Ole Miss and Texas Tech are not equal footing on basketball. They did, I mean, Tubby Smith actually did a better job there than he gets historically credit for. But it's not like Texas Tech was a basketball mecca. I don't think dudes look at Lubbock and are like, I have to come here. Do you know what Ole Miss's all-time record is in basketball? I couldn't even begin to tell you, but I would imagine it's a, at least 100 games under 500. It's well, no, because you win so many non-cons. But ah, fair point enough. being, they're right at 500. All-time Ole Miss is 13 and 38 and 13 and 40. So they could get over 500 this year if he plays his November, right? Maybe they could have a ceremony for that. Um, they could. Well, I can have that game in the tag path. What do you make of that? I think it's actually a good idea. No one likes the tad pad, but as a one-off, it is a phenomenal idea as a one-off. Go in there and give look, here this is simple. Okay? This is this is so simple. You let Keith Carter go in there and like do a first shot free throw or some crap. You play the video on the board and you recognize all those dudes. You've got the throwbacks from like the Justin Reed era. They wear those all the time anyway. You put those bad boys on them. And you just celebrate Tad Smith. Like, it, look, Tad Smith is a crap hole and has holes in the roof and all this stuff. It was a really cool basketball venue just from an environment. They won a lot of games during that time period in the late 90s. I mean, I think everybody would like to go back in there for one game. Now, look, are you going to have some people pissed off because there's no premium seating and all that stuff? Sure, whatever. Sell that ticket separate than the rest of the season ticket package. I don't know how you got to do it to figure it out. I mean, frankly, look, if it's me, I play UAB. I'm bringing AK back. We're we're, we're going to have a party. That's what I'm doing. I'd like to have a special press conference where K, AK only takes tad pad questions. Like it yes, does exactly. And like I was wondering when they had that idea, like how far do you take it? Like rain or not, I'd like to carve a little hole in the roof. Maybe you get one of those recruiting interns or one of those video guys to just dump a bucket of water onto the court before the game. Get a nice little delay there. I think they should sell only 40s and let people smoke in the building and just get the real full aesthetic of what the Tad Pad can be. Um, I mean, the nostalgia alone will be walking down into those bathrooms that look like prison cells and peeing in a trough again in 2024. They took the scoreboard down, so I don't know how you fix that. Um, you got to figure some of those things out. But, um, look, it's doable because the Tad, tad Pad's only been out of commission since 2016. I want to say when he did his first one at – Texas Tech playing in whatever their old arena was. Don't tell me, don't ask me to name it. I think they had not played a game in it since 1999 or something. Like it had been a while. And, and I didn't and know he'd done it before. They, so he's going back into his bag for an old trip. Yeah, no, that's like a thing of his is he goes back into the old places and like honors the history or whatever. That's like one of his shticks. Well, did they walk him in there before he decided to float this idea? Because part of me would be like he took two steps in there, like, no, nah, absolutely not. Um, this doesn't seem safe. So I mean, maybe I, I hope he's seen the tad pad at least. I think the dance team dances practices in there or something. They use okay, it. Okay, fair enough. We well, just take our guy through a tour before he fully commits to this idea. I mean, and, AK didn't even show his own players the tad pad when he was recruiting them. So, like, no reason to show Beard the tad pad when they don't play in it. Bracken has so many great uh, AK stories about the tad pad. The last couple of years, anytime somebody would cough, he would just scream that it's the asbestos. Um, and just, <laughs> and then the David Brandt story about it being in the sky or the, Look up, like there's the sky, as there's a hole in the roof. I know you got to run, but the last thing I want to cover real quick, I have been floored by this JB Holmes story all week. I have texted you a couple of times. I've texted each one of my buddies that follows golf. I can't believe this. He unfortunately poured cold water on it via a newly uh, activated Twitter account he has, but I'm just going to ignore that because I want to believe what I want to believe. And for people out there who have not seen this, J.B. Holmes was a player on the PGA Tour, two-decade-long guy. He's won five times on the PGA Tour. He's played on two winning Ryder Cup teams. Kind of a Hit veteran guy. Mile. Yeah, lost status a bit. He's one of those guys that's just buying his time until he turns 50 and he can go rock the senior tour. Happens a lot. Happens to a lot of great players. There was a report from the Monday Q Info guy who covers the lower levels of professional golf, does a great job with it, that there was a six-man tournament outside of Nashville in which a team had a six-man team in which they had someone registered under the name Jonathan Bradley. J.B. Holmes stands for Jonathan Bradley. So not a fake name, but not his full name. Like if, if a birth certificate were submitted, his name would have not been written on the T-sheet as Jonathan Bradley. That team blitzes the field the first day. Apparently all of them no-show the Calcutta dinner. 
They go back out the next day. They're a few holes in, and the club pro apparently just follows their group because they think maybe something's up, I guess. I don't know. And recognizes Holmes by his swing and is like, wait a minute, what the hell is this? And so a six-man recreational tournament team brought in J.B. Holmes under an assumed name, won the tournament, allegedly grabbed the trophy and immediately walked out, and it was a $30,000 Calcutta, which means the winning team would have walked away with about twenty two grand, if I had to guess. And okay, they were not. They got eliminated from the Calcutta. They could not win. Yeah, the they Calcutta got booted as soon as this was discovered. It, it was okay. Here, here's the thing, and this is where I'm confused now. If none of them showed at the Calcutta, they didn't even bet on their own team. They did not. So Holmes clarified this. Holmes said, "This is." I say that none of them showed at the Calcutta. This is by JB Holmes's account that he put out last night. He said none of them bet on the Calcutta. That his buddies the next day offered to do the whole. The guy that bought our team, let's go try to buy a share. And Holmes, he says he didn't want to do it, but he was like, whatever. And the rest of them did it. So according to him, they no-showed it. Someone bought them. They did not bet on themselves or raise the bid. I don't know if I believe that, but then bought a share back into it. Okay. It's and for non-golf people to try to explain this for a minute. The reason why there is a freakout mode is that you're manipulating the Calcutta. You're manipulating people putting money in and betting and the actual payouts from this, what is essentially an auction, um, the, the the night between the two rounds. So that's why people are frustrated because if people know J.B. Holmes are in, is in the event and on this team and this team that's already in first place, their number would have been bet way up. You wouldn't have as much money bet on the other teams. It did absolutely affect pocketbooks in staying this. But what I don't get is I don't get – the need for the secrecy. I mean, frankly, as I hear more and more, I think they're all kind of idiots because, I mean, just let J.B. Holmes come play in the tournament and then try to either buy a share the same way the next day or bid on your own team and try to win it. Like, I just, when, when you weren't necessarily trying to maximize the Calcutta payout, I don't understand the point. Okay, that's a great point, and I don't get it. And again, for the non-golf people listening, I'll just paint you the aesthetics of how these things usually work. They happen across, there's three big ones in the Mississippi Delta, whereas if they had tried uh -huh. to pull this in the Mississippi Delta, I'm not kidding you, they wouldn't have made it out. So like, Half of the field... You, you really think, okay, this thing happens and we pull in, I mean, forget J.B. Holmes, but like pull in your ringer, like we say... Billy Watson, who's really Bubba Watson, comes into Clarksdale. You think we got a problem getting out of there? I did some in-depth reporting on this. I sent this to every golf buddy I have. And about, I would say at least five or six of them played. So the big one's in Clarksdale. And that Calcutta yeah. gets four and five times over this one, if not more. Yeah. Um, so you're saying 30,000 30, bucks, multiply that times five. I don't know why I don't want to say specific numbers. I've never been there for the Clarksdale one but I'm going off secondhand information, really firsthand information. I've seen photos of it. But point being, I it's sent, a shit show. I sent this to five dudes who play in that one. I've played in the Cleveland one before, and then I played in Greenwood's first one this year. The reaction that I got from the regulars that play in these types of things were, one, my God, $30,000 Calcutta, what rookie numbers? Number two, they were absolutely – while none of them would admit personal guilt themselves, they were like, they absolutely would not have made it out of the parking lot. They would, someone would have beat them up. Someone would have fought them. I mean, you're talking about this tournament. According to this story, the screenshot I have here, once everyone found out the post-round dinner, people started chanting obscenities that had eventually led to the entire room chanting bullshit over and over again. I would have paid so much money to be a fly on the wall for that type of thing. But you get a couple hundred dudes in a room chanting bullshit of course they're like angry imagine what would have happened in clarksdale so the setting of this is you play one day there's usually a party you they auction off the team so calcutta is basically just betting on the team it doesn't work like obviously like handicapping odds but you just bet on the team and a lot of these guys throw around a lot of money you can win mid five figures sometimes in these big ones winning this type of money so that's the setting it's all for fun the club pro's basically job is to please sandbagging which is absolutely hysterical um i don't know i had a buddy send me the rules list that the pro wrote himself um from the event and have you seen this no oh it's incredible so it's it's a it's a minute detail in all of this but i want to pull it up really quick because i think it just gives a good idea of kind of how these things work and like what people are guarding it sandbagging means you 
intentionally play bad the first day to get into a lower flight and then play well. Because you're not worried about the trophy. You're trying to win the money for anybody who doesn't get that. You're just worried about the cash. Right. If there's 30 teams, normally a flight, they'll separate you into anywhere between eight group, like an eight team group and a 10 team group. And all your focus on the second day is winning your flight. That's where the money is. So sandbagging is playing bad to get in a lower flight and then dominating the flight the next day. This club pro presumably wrote this, said, this is the rules on sandbagging. Quote, don't be that guy I am watching, so is the observer. Rule number two, if I suspect you threw off on day one to position yourself better for day two, I will ban you from future gangsums, which is the name of this six-man tournament. Because there's no good way a six-person scramble. There's no good way to do a six-person scramble. It's about having fun making birdies. Last one is my favorite. I personally reserve the right to bump you up a flight if your day two score is not remotely in line with your round one score. So, so clearly half the battle sandbagging here. I, that was a long-winded way of getting to my point is people were angry about this. They throw down significant... But they were in the championship flight though, right? Yeah, they won the whole thing. I mean, that's why I think they're idiots. It's not like they went out with J.B. Holmes and shot an 81 the first day and were like, oh, rah, 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 rah. like... So, yeah, no, you're right. They didn't sandbag the thing, but with the tour pro, they shockingly blitzed the field. They're, they, it wouldn't have mattered what flight they were in. The thing that I don't get, and Holmes's account was that his buddy registered him under Jonathan Bradley as a joke. That's the part that does not pass the smell test to me. This was a non-handicapped event, which doesn't really matter that much. But why put him under an assumed name unless there's a veal of secrecy there? And he saw his name on the scorecard as Jonathan Bradley. So there's no way he didn't know what was up. They were being cute. But yeah, the like it, it went from, oh, this is epic and really, really funny to you guys are just kind of dumb. You could have won money had you just showed up with J.B. Holmes. That'd be yeah. kind of cool. That'd be Jonathan, like Jonathan Randall played on the PJ Tour. He played in the Greenwood Six-Man. He played in the Greenville one. Um, one of the things I found wild about the whole Greenwood thing is Randolph and Kyle Ellis were on a team. That's a guy who played on the PGA tour and the corn Ferry tour. Some dummy put pre-tournament odds out, which is, there's no way to do that. It's just some guy in the pro shop being like, let me throw something out there. The team with the PGA tour player and the corn Ferry tour player, I sent this to you fifth best odds. They were plus two fifty to win that sucker. How does that work? I would have taken, I, I, I'll take those guys and try. And, 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 yeah, if I'd have cared enough, I'd have been like, look, I can wire you money tonight. Like, I'll take those guys. But anyway, to wrap this up, it's an incredible, incredible elaborate cheating scheme at its worst. And just a series of dumb choices at its best, I guess. Like, I don't know any other way to describe it. Why not just show up with J.B. Holmes is my point. There was clearly some nefarious behavior here. So, so, so when I run into a scramble with Jonathan, I shouldn't just write JR on the scorecard and, and, and see how it goes for the Calcutta that night. What if we had showed up? I don't know what Randolph's first name is. Let's just say it's Fred. What if we had showed up to a Calcutta tournament, me, you, couple other guys, you know, and then we put Jonathan Randolph as Fred Jonathan and we won the whole thing and people didn't find out who it was until after how well would that have gone over with anyone there? You would have been completely disassociated moving forward forever. Like it would have been over for for good. That's it. Like it's just it's also a weird move from Holmes's part. Like I, honestly, but until he kind of made a joke out of it, and maybe it doesn't prove that. My first thought was like, did the guy piss away his career earnings, and he's now just fleecing ten handicaps at six mans to try to recoup some Calcutta money? He was always, you know, he's always been a little bit of a weird guy. Really slow. That was like his calling card. Yes. Takes about a minute to hit a shot. He's only 41. I would have definitely gone over on that. I would have guessed he's closer to 45. So he's still got nine years before he makes the senior tour. No wonder he's in these Calcutta events. Yeah, I don't know that he can hold on that long. He does have a very distinctive swing. You'd be able to pick him out. You'd be able to pick him out by his ball flight. I get that there's well, a bunch okay. of scratch amateurs, but that guy hits three tee shots, and you're like, holy shit, who is this dude? Yeah, if you don't play golf, there is a clear difference between the scratch golfer at your club and a PGA Tour pro. Like, it's not even the same game. Like, it... it, it, it and before... You, yeah, no, exactly. It's a totally different thing. You, you can recognize who's a pro and who's not, it, it, no matter how good you are. And then the last thing on this is, like, until he answered it, my first thought was like he either went to the Calcutta party and was like, what's up, I'm Jonathan Bradley, and was in on it, or he skipped it because he was in on it. And so, like, I just don't buy the whole thing. It cracks me up. 
there's nothing that gets a bunch of young adults to middle-aged dudes more riled up than potential cheating in a weekend six-man scramble. But my God, I would have paid to be in that room when that entire room founds out J.B. Holmes' team won it under a fake name and they just all start screaming bullshit in unison. That would have just been a beautiful weekend warrior American moment. He was in on it. They were trying to get away with it, with the money, and just get a cut of the winning team the next day. So they were trying to do. Because I guarantee, had they got done with the 18 holes, as soon as it was over, he was going to skip out. Yes, absolutely. Five minutes, he, he's in his car and gone. So for you guys that don't play golf, you think pe- people take it to your fa- too far in your rec league softball? That, you know, that your rec league softball team, this is like being like, you know, Aaron Judge, he's 24. He's an accountant here in Oxford. No, he's not the Yankees baseball player, but he will be playing third base for us tonight. It, it Look, it is the dumbest thing in the world, but it's also the most accurate thing that it can clearly get your adrenaline and your blood pressure up when you suspect some sort of cheating in a golf tournament that oh, yeah. is only going to cost you a hundred, couple hundred bucks. It's not the end of the world in any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I have, I have argued with a pro on a fairway because in a member guest, a guy we were playing against was getting double pops and he was shooting like 80. Oh like, yeah, I have had that conversation where I'm like, come on, like this, this is complete and utter bullshit. And you mentioned not being the end of the world, you know, the guys that bet big money on those things, I'd say there's a certain type of profile of dude who's doing that. But imagine the kind of wild card guy who threw $20,000 on another team mm-hmm. and then realized he was betting against JB Holmes. You think that guy's going to handle that calmly? Well, that's a good point. He's real pissed. Oh, furious. So that was why my theory, if he tried that in the Mississippi Delta, he would be shamed out of the uh, clubhouse, maybe have some personal injuries. But just an incredible, incredible cheating story. You got to run. He's been Chase Parham. I appreciate the time as always, my man. We'll do this sometime again soon. Appreciate it, bud. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Appreciate Chase's time. Thank you for listening to this podcast as always. Kind of entering the uh, full summer mode here, but we'll have a couple more pods for you next week. And I hope you have a great weekend and we'll heart you at the beginning of next week.